Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. I am pleased to have Sarah Rocha, she, her, back on the podcast. Sarah is a CBCCKA, CPDTKA, CVT, and she owns Possibilities Dog Training LLC, which has two locations in Southeast Minnesota and the Twin Cities Metro. Sarah is back to update us on her multi-gen mixed breed breeding program and her new litter. She's going to talk with us about transparency in breeding, making hard decisions, and tells us all about her latest litter of dogs bred to be excellent companions and sports light partners. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Me too. Um, so for those who didn't listen, uh, Sarah was one of the very first people that I interviewed back when I was nervous about convincing people to come be on the podcast. And she was someone that I knew pretty well. So I was I was confident that she would come and talk about her breeding program then. And there have been changes since then. So we and she has a, a nice new litter out there. And so we thought we would uh, do a to talk about that. So let's start off. Tell us about your dog, Sarah. Who do you who do you live with? So currently we have four dogs in our household um, and two of them I actually introduced last time. And then there's two new additions. So uh, just briefly, the the two that I introduced last time, Pan is a purpose bred sport mix. He's seven years old um, and he's a mix of. Border Collie, Jack Russell, Staffordshire, Bull Terrier, and Whippet primarily. Um, he is 24 pounds and uh, 15 inches. And then I have his daughter, Biz, and Biz is three years old. She's 18 pounds. She's 13 and a half inches at her shoulders. Um, and she is uh, Pan's daughter. And then the mom is a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, Rat Terrier cross. And then for the new additions, uh, Morrigan, Rig, is a 14-month-old, I'm calling her a spicy border whippet, so she's mostly <laughs> border collie and whippet, but she's got a little bit of Malinois and a little bit of a border terrier just for flair, um, and she definitely has a lot of flair. <laughs> I like um, it. She's, she's a lot of dog, but she's also a lot of fun. She's kind of one of those dogs that, as a trainer, makes you look really good. Um, but then living with her day to day, part of it is her age, but she's also just a very busy dog. Um, so she's a dog who needs a little bit more than my other dogs. And then the newest addition was actually not planned. Uh, we ended up keeping one of the puppies from this recent litter that we're going to be talking about. So Iroh is 13 weeks old, um, and he is Biz's son out of a Cavalier stud. Um, and he's actually a dog that, again, we weren't planning to keep him, um, but my husband fell in love. So <laughs> now one of our four dogs is his fault, which is really nice for me. <laughs> 
Um, and he's delightful. He's he's a really nice little dog. He's um, very easygoing. He's very happy. Uh, just that we've said that his theme song is Walking on Sunshine. I mean, that's just his personality. He's He sounds like with Cavalier, so much Cavalier in there, he might be a little less spicy. He's definitely yeah, very milder. vanilla. Yes. <laughs> nice. So, and when we talked last, uh, we talked about how you bred Pan and produced Biz. So, um, and I guess you've already mentioned which of these dogs are, are in your breeding program, but do you want to tell us more about your what your program's goals are and how long you've been doing this and how long you hope to do it? Sure. So I like to summarize my breeding program goals as gateway dog sports dogs. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is that um, my dogs are first and foremost pets and they're going to pet homes. You know, I, I want them to be a member of the family. I want them to be very sociable, very easy to take into public, very stable, um, just kind of very simple dogs to own. Um, not a lot of complicated management or training needed. They're just kind of good to go. But then also dogs that enjoy doing things with their people that are going to be very trainable and very fun to do activities with. So if somebody wants to get into barn hunt or dock diving or disc or rally obedience or agility um, or lure coursing, I'm trying to think of all of the things that dogs (laughs) that I've produced have done. um, They're happy to do that, right? They, They like doing things with their people. They're going to be, you know, functionally sound. So they're going to physically be able to do these activities for long careers and then just mentally sound where they're going to be happy and stable and sociable and trainable. So that's kind of my, my base goal. As far as uh, how long I've been doing this, I'm fairly new to the, the breeding world. I'm not new to raising puppies. I've been doing that for about 20 years through uh, various shelters and rescues. But as far as uh, the, the front end work for breeding, that's very new to me. So um, making matches instead of just having a pregnant bitch show up at my house and being like, we don't know when she's due, but here, good luck. Um, that, that's very new. That sounds hair raising. <laughs> you know, one thing that I didn't really realize is how much more difficult whelping is in the rescue community and how much you learn. And it's something Mm. that I'd recommend if people are thinking about breeding and they're thinking that that may be something that they want to do in the future, raising some litters for your favorite local rescue or foster-based organization, you're going to learn so, so much. And it's nice to have then those, you know, support networks in place. So if you have a medically complicated puppy, you've got the resources of the shelter rescue, you've got people who are experienced with that because it is a lot harder whelping a dog when you don't know the due date and you don't know the health status and mom comes to you very stressed and Mm. the puppies might have genetic issues crop up. Uh, The last litter that I whelped for rescue, we didn't embark on one of the puppies and um, we had already kind of suspected it was a hoarding case that Maybe uh, the 
Sire and Dam were related and yeah, they were brother sister. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that litter was, you know, 25% COI. And yeah. unfortunately we lost two of the four puppies to pretty serious genetic issues. One of them had a, a severe cleft palate and one of them had um, atlantoaxial luxation and uh, laryngeal collapse. So he just wasn't wasn't able to make it sure um but that's something to consider that you definitely get a lot of experience that way and then whelping a dog that has been in your home since a puppy that's had the the appropriate medical care that's not stressed where you've chosen a good mate the dog is fit um you know when they're due (laughs) that was Mm. really easy I was like, wow, this is, this is really, comparatively really easy. Comparatively. Easy. Comparatively yes. easy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> so after you'd been doing, uh, raising puppies for shelters for that long, why did you decide to jump into breeding yourself? So that last litter I talked about is actually, um, one big part of it, right? So, uh, dealing with so many health issues um, and temperament issues. And we know that, for example, uh, maternal stress in utero changes how puppies' brains develop. And certainly I've seen that in some of the litters I've raised that have had a very, very stressed mom. Um, Mm. Definitely we've seen those puppies have very early onset behavioral issues, even with the very best puppy raising program we could give them. And then honestly, here in Minnesota, there just aren't enough dogs. Mm. So I actually, you know, I'm a geek um, and I'm going to get really, really geeky. (laughs) We welcome that here. This is the place for that. So we're really going to do a deep dive into numbers just because that's one thing that I did. Um, And I think there's a lot of prevalent myths about the availability of dogs right now and they're they were true 20 years ago Mm. and they're no longer true but we're kind of holding on to those myths as a community um and certainly they are still true in some areas of the country so if you live in north carolina or california or florida or texas the those myths are still true in your area But in areas like where I live in Minnesota, my clients are really struggling to find puppies when they decide that their family is ready. And the puppies that we're seeing coming through our puppy classes at Possibilities are just more complicated than the the puppies we were seeing a decade ago or two Mm. decades ago. Um, So as far as numbers... The best estimates I can find, there's somewhere between 83 and 108 million dogs in the U.S. right now. Um, And I know that's a really wide range. So the AVMA um, did a 2020 pet ownership and demographics survey that put that number somewhere between 83 and 89 million. Uh, The American Pet Product Association's 2021 to 2022 survey um, was a little bit higher. They're saying up to a hundred million dogs in the U S and then best friends, um, didn't have a date on the data that they had on their website, but they were estimating somewhere around 108 million dogs. 
in the U.S. So there's a lot of dogs in the U.S. right now. Um, if we're looking at like the average life expectancy of dogs, um, the most recent number I could find was actually a UK-based study, but I think it's probably pretty applicable to the U.S. population because we have similar lifestyles, right? And we have similar reasons for acquiring pets. We keep our pets in pretty similar conditions. Um, but that study was saying that the average dog lives around 11.23 years. So... Um, when we look at those numbers, what that means is that the annual replacement rate for dogs in the U.S. is probably somewhere around like 7.4 to 9.6 million dogs per year. So if, and these are big assumptions, but if everybody, when they lose a dog, gets another dog, and the number of new people getting dogs is pretty similar to the number of people that are maybe not getting another dog for whatever reason, that's a lot of dogs that we need to replace every year. So then we have to ask like, where do those dogs come from? Where are people getting dogs? Right now, around 3.1 million dogs enter shelters annually. Um, but about 23% of those are returned to their owners. Um, and that's based on the most recent data I could find, which was from the ASPCA. And that was in 2019. So, and then the ASPCA data also said that around 13% are euthanized for various reasons. Um, some of those may be due to space or due to lack of homes. From being in the shelter and rescue world for so long, I can say that a lot are probably not. A lot are probably um, health-related, untreatable um, issues like that. Yeah, so. there are. I think Best Friends does actually have statistics on how many dogs are euthanized. Uh, dogs coming into shelters are euthanized uh, for being basically unhealthy, untreatable. Um, right. And it's, and it's um, yeah, it's, it's a surprisingly large percent of the euthanasia statistic, right? So if you, it's, you it sort is, of are yeah. cutting the euthanasia statistic into some of these dogs really are not appropriate to adopt to adopt out a lot of them are dogs that are coming in where the owners are basically saying i'm surrendering to the shelter with the expectation that the shelter will do will perform the euthanasia um, a lot of the owners actively request that right so there's you know dogs who are very very sick or sort of otherwise end of life versus the dogs that are euthanized um, for space right and um right and the numbers used to be hugely skewed to the dogs being euthanized for space and there are statistics showing that that that's skewing back the other way now that um, space is. I mean, it's definitely, as you said, it's definitely still an issue some places, but it's really not an issue a lot of other places. Right. Well, and we know that a lot of the dogs that would have been euthanized for space now, we we have programs in place where we are getting them where they need to go to find homes. So um, the, the local rescue that I foster for the vast majority of their dogs, you know, probably I would guess at least 95% of their dogs are dogs that are coming from out of state. So we're, we're shipping dogs up to Minnesota to provide dogs for people who want them because we don't have enough dogs in Minnesota being produced to kind of replace the dogs that are being lost. Is that and where so, the, the puppies that you were raising, were those, were those coming in from out of state? Yeah. Uh, like the last litter that um, that hoarding case mama that I took in, um, she was from Texas. Right. 
So the vast majority of those dogs were coming up from down south, um, some from other countries. But it's, it's pretty rare that we're seeing euthanasia for space anymore in most areas of the U.S., um, so if we look at that, you know, 3.1 million dogs coming into shelters in the U.S., if we subtract out that 23% of dogs returned to owners, that 13% of dogs euthanized, that leaves us with about 2 million, a little under 2 million adoptable dogs each year. And remember that the replacement number for dogs in the U.S. is around 7.4 to 9.6 million dogs a year. So... We, we can't just replace dogs with adoptable dogs anymore. 20 years ago, absolutely. 20 years ago, we did have so many dogs in shelters that um, that was the best place to send people because you could yeah. find that, that perfect pet in shelters, but that is no longer the case, at least here in Minnesota. So then I said I was going to get geeky. I've got other numbers too. <laughs> no, go for it. Go for it. Um, so what about breeders? So I looked at uh, AKC statistics and um, based on the 2021 numbers, um, and I got those from the January 2022 board of director um, meeting minutes, the AKC registered over 800,000 dogs in 2021. And that was actually the highest number of registrations that they've had in 14 years. So, um, if just so that we have conservative estimates, if we assume that every single AKC breeder is responsible and is breeding dogs with a focus on health and temperament, and that any AKC registered dog is going to be a good fit for the average pet home, uh, that means that purebred responsibly, you know, AKC registered dogs would account for 83 to 10.8% of the replacement dogs we need each year. Right. So it's a pretty little drop in the bucket. Um, as far as irresponsible breeders, looking at the HSUS's 2021 data, um, they're saying that about 1.3 million puppies are produced by USDA licensed facilities each year. So those are our puppy mills, generally, right? Um, and they're thinking that if you take into account non-licensed puppy mills, um, that might be closer to double that, so 2.6 million. Um, so irresponsibly bred kind of factory farmed puppies are probably making up, you know, 27 to 35% of our replacement dogs in the U.S. each year. And a lot of that is education. People just don't know. And then I think a lot of that is also availability. If you want a puppy, here in Minnesota, it's hard to get a puppy from a shelter or rescue. Uh, they get adopted really, really quickly. And if you're trying to get a puppy from a responsible breeder, you're probably looking at a several year wait. Um, and you kind of have to know people in the community with a lot of good breeders who are doing all the health testing and titling their dogs and things like that. They're not necessarily just placing dogs with anybody who asks. You kind of have to already have a base of knowledge that the average pet owner might not have. It's so hard to you get know. to your first dog, right? It is. It is. Yeah. You have to kind of know the secret handshake. Yes. Right. Because if you ask like, do you have puppies available? How much are they? And most responsible breeders aren't even going to respond to you. Right. 
And it's oftentimes an educational issue. It's just that people don't know what to ask and they don't know the right way to ask these questions. Right, right. Um, so we've talked about shelters and rescues. We've talked about uh, kennel club registered dogs. We've talked about USDA licensed facilities. Um, and then the other big category of dogs I could find numbers on um, was private rehoming. And according to best friends, about 35% of people get their dogs via private rehoming. So that's your dog is from um, a friend or relative or a coworker or a neighbor, you know, somebody who's getting rid of their dog and you think that dog's going to be a good fit for your household. So you get the dog that way, you know, or your coworker had an oops litter because the neighbor dog jumped the fence and the puppies are really cute. So you get a puppy that way. So that's about 35% of the dogs, which would be about 2.6 to 3.4 million dogs per year. Yeah. And I do want to weigh in that a lot of the, the private rehoming that we're talking about is adult dogs, not yes, puppies. Exactly. And those technically when we're talking about replacement dogs, um, those dogs, they're not new dogs coming right. into the population to replace dogs that have died. Right. Um, right. They're moving from someone. I know you know this, but I'm sort of explaining for the for the audience. But they're no, it's a, it's from, a great point. Yeah, they're moving from someone who has a dog to someone who didn't have a dog, right? But they're not adding to the dog population, right? Um, I would note that um, I gave a talk similar to this at one point, and it was pointed out to me that um, the other group is who we would sort of characterize as backyard breeders, people who are selling dogs more or less to make money. Um, they may be doing it to, um, sort of more for, for fun or for a hobby, or they may be doing it to make money, but they're not producing the volume of what we'd call a puppy mill. And they're producing the dogs out of their house, but they're maybe not focusing on health testing the way we might like. Um, they're not thinking through carefully pairing dogs. Um, it's more haphazard. Um, and so that's sort of another group that's in there. It's so hard to get numbers for any of these things. I'm really yeah. impressed at how many numbers you came up with, by the way. Yeah, that's, <laughs> thank you. I really like nerding out about things. <laughs> you like I the numbers. I'm to share it's it with good. a community that also likes to get nerdy. Um, but I think that, like I said, there's a lot of prevalent myths about the availability of dogs and where you can get a dog and where you can get a nice dog that's going to be a good fit for you. And what I've seen being in the, the field, um, being a professional dog trainer and seeing, you know, thousands of dogs every year is that that's no longer the case. It's not easy to find a good match. And it's especially difficult if you're a first-time pet owner or you have small children or you live in an apartment or, you know, all of these things that or you that's want a small dog started. Yeah, right? you or want you want a, a small dog, small dog. or um, a dog that doesn't, you know, that's sort of uh, lower shedding because you have right. allergies. Right. Um, or perhaps you have had some health issues with your previous dogs and you really want a dog that has health testing in their background and, and you know how long that dog's relatives have lived and what they've died of, it's really hard to find that. Um, so that's a big part of why I've kind of entered the breeding world is that there's this need and I have nice dogs. <laughs> 
And and so. let me just pause to say, by the way, that I do get um not a massive number, but some number of comments on the Functional Dog Collaborative page from people basically saying, you know, everyone who breeds dogs is is evil, and um, you know, more dogs is bad. We have too many dogs to begin with. And I and I do want to emphasize that when I'm talking to people like Sarah and when I'm talking to other breeders, we're not talking about having there be more dogs in the country. We're talking about having the same number of dogs, but having a larger proportion of them come from really good starts. Um, exactly. That, which is what Sarah's describing here. Yeah, my my goal would be that that, you know, 35 percent of dogs, replacement dogs coming from um, puppy mills let's get that number lower because yeah. we know that those are the dogs that are ending up in our shelters and rescues. What we're seeing ending up in shelters and rescues are not dogs from good breeders because the dogs from good breeders have a safety net. If something happens, they're going back to their breeders. They're not ending up in the shelter or rescue um, pipeline. And so the more responsible breeders we have and the more available, responsibly bred, nice dogs we have that are going to stay in their first home for their entire life, the less we're going to have issues with homeless dogs and the less we're going to have issues with um, dogs being kept in really poor welfare for the purpose of breeding. Yes. And, and I also want to note that Sarah is not saying that there is a problem with the dogs who are in shelters, right? Oh, she's God, talking no. about, right? <laughs> but that's what some people hear. So right, I just want to be right. careful. So yes, she's I talking about it. a safety net um, that does exist. You know, breeders who are really responsible breeders always say one of one of the one of the things that they are co contracting to do is to manage any dog that loses its home, so take it back or find a, another appropriate home for it. But they don't want their dogs ending up in shelters. Um, and so there may be dogs that are finding their way to shelters through no fault of their own, and they lack that safety net. Um, right. But the, the other thing I'd like to, to point out is that dogs who have no behavior problems typically move through shelters, even in high population areas, very quickly. Dogs yes. who do have behavior problems tend to be stuck there, and then they start to fill up the shelters. So the more dogs we produce without behavior problems, if they do end up in the shelter, um, as happens, right? Like someone can lose their home or something like that. They will move through quickly, which is another really important goal. It is. We know that length of stay in the shelter is kind of directly correlated with outcome. And so the sooner that we can get those dogs in good placements, so not just out the doors, but in good placements that are going to be um, permanent placements, the better for the dog and the better for the community. So given all of that, you thought you, one of the ways that you could help the situation was by producing more dogs who would be good pets. Exactly. So tell us about it. So you, you knew a lot about raising puppies and presumably a fair amount about whelping, but you had to learn how to take a dog and find a good match for that dog and how to health test and how to interpret the health test. So wh where did you learn and how hard was it? So honestly, the FDC has been a really helpful resource. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's the, the Facebook community, um, social media communities can be difficult, right? There's no 
really like healthy, a hundred percent positive social community it doesn't exist. Right. But the FTC um, does a good job with moderation, and there are a lot of, I think, potentially charged topics that are discussed in the group really well, where disparate viewpoints are. Um, not necessarily immediately shot down, but explored. And some of those kind of sacred cows of dog breeding are maybe picked apart and looked at with a thought to the science and what we actually know versus, you know, how we feel about things. And so that's been a really good resource. Um, I've done quite a bit of reading. I've done quite a bit of um, online continuing education. And it's great because I'm also a certified vet tech so I can get my CEs to keep my vet tech <laughs> nice licensure at the same time. Um, good Dog has some really good resources. So uh, Good Dog is in online um, breeder listing. And if you're a breeder listed with them, they have a lot of free educational resources and they've got a lot of quality content. Um, they're the ones that have taken over the Avidog puppy raising program um, after Gail Watkins retired. And then Embark has also had a lot of really good free educational resources. Um, I've attended their conferences. They have online conferences um, that are recorded that are really good. So there is a lot of good information out there. It's just kind of sourcing it. And then just being willing to geek out and follow that information up by looking up the studies and <laughs> reading through the papers and um talking to people. So the other thing that I found really, really helpful is that there have been a good number of experienced breeders who've been phenomenal about mentoring me oh, and great. answering all of my questions. And there's a lot. <laughs> so there've been a lot of questions. Um, God, I'm trying to think where to go next, but I, I'm tempted to say, can you think of any of those questions off the top of your head, just to give us a flavor? I've had a lot of questions about specifics. So, um, and I know we're going to talk about that momentarily. I had uh, one health testing result that was not expected um, with my girl and kind of talking through that with multiple breeders and then um, geneticists and veterinarians and basically everybody I could ask <laughs> about it um, yeah. was really helpful. So asking about specific situations, asking about, you know, if you were in this situation, what would you do? Yeah. And then also asking um, questions about looking forward, does this seem reasonable? So talking about like breeding goals is this a reasonable goal? Is this something that we can achieve through breeding? Because I think sometimes we, um, and I'm talking just for myself, I don't want to talk about breeders in general, because I'm very, very new. But I know I like to think that I can control everything, and that it's possible to breed a perfect dog. And it's, it's not, right? Genetics are really complicated, and dogs are um, autonomous beings with their own thoughts and their yeah. own wants and desires and environment does play a big role in a lot and biology so, is messy and complicated exactly exactly so i'd like to think that 
I'm perfect and I can breed the perfect dog. And we all know that none of that is true at all. <laughs> right. No, and it's right. And no one can. Right. There's, there's always going to be issues. And I think the way the dog community has dealt with that so far is by um, just be carefully not talking about it if there's an issue in a particular dog. Um, which makes it look like there are perfect litters out there. And that's more just um, sort of a veneer that when there's more transparency, you start seeing what the various issues are. Yes. Um, and that's something that I've definitely dealt with firsthand. And again, we can talk about that more in a little bit, but um, I've definitely dealt with the dog community really being uncomfortable and judgmental about my transparency about things um and i can see where it's very easy to get punished into silence if you're yeah. part of those communities yeah facebook is very good at punishing people into silence yes yeah so i guess the big question to start with before we get to some of the the interesting decisions that we've been talking about is what health tests you did um because you you aren't breeding purebred dogs and when people are breeding purebreds, there's, you know, there's a relatively straightforward process for figuring out what health tests to do. Usually the breed club has a list and then you might want to add a couple based on your lines or particular concerns. But with mixed breeds, it's really unclear. There's the, on the one hand, some people advocate breed for everything that could be potentially relevant in any breed that's in the mix, uh, which is a, what a lot of people do, I think, mostly so that they don't get yelled at on social media. Right. Um, because in a lot of cases, if the dog is not a purebred of that breed, the test is much less relevant. Um, and so it's probably the case that mixed breed dogs actually need less health testing, but not having the evidence for that, most people just sort of play it safe and go for more. Uh, where did you Where did you come down in the middle of all of that? Yeah, so with... Biz, when I was looking at breeding her, um, her parents both have health testing. And so um, for her dad, for Pan, we did his um, hips, elbows, eyes, and patellas, and then um, hearing. And so with him, he has some white-headed dogs in his background, and he had some white spotting on one ear. So just mm. To make sure, even though there were no signs that he had any deafness, we also did a bear. Um, her dam had uh, hips and elbows and eyes done. And then both parents also had a full embark panel. And for both of them, it came up as um, clear, so no at risk and no carrier. Sure. So that's kind of what I, the information I was starting with. And then for Biz, um, I also did kind of the the baseline, what I feel like is responsible for, you know, any mixed breed, which would be an embark panel and then hips, elbows, and eyes. So her hips came back as excellent. Um, her elbows and eyes were both normal. And then her embark panel was clear. So no at risk and no carrier. And her COI, her coefficient of inbreeding um, on embark. So her genetic COI is 1%. Oh, that and is very low. It is, um, which her litter actually ended up being zero um, percent, which is what we anticipated because of the cross, which we'll talk yeah. about more in a minute. And then I also did uh, patellas on her, and that was the health test that came up as abnormal. 
Um, and so I'll talk about that. Um, I haven't been punished into silence yet. Um, we'll see, we'll see if, if yeah, we can yeah. work on that. Right. <laughs> um, so with her patellar exam, her right knee is normal and her left knee came back as a grade one out of four. And what that means is that um, she's asymptomatic. So she's very active. She competes in disc dog. She competes in lure coursing. She was at a, actually at a disc dog trial this last weekend where we were doing combination games. So it's a combination of disc and agility. Uh, so Fun. she was jumping and catching discs. Um, she doesn't show any symptoms of patellar luxation. She doesn't skip. She doesn't have any pain. She doesn't have any arthritis. But if we push, um, she does have a slightly shallow patellar groove. And so it would be possible to get her kneecap out. Um, I see a sports medicine and rehabilitation vet for all of my dogs on a regular basis, just because I'm asking them to be very active and I want to make sure that that's comfortable for them and that they're able to have long careers and, and long lives where they're comfortable and functional. And um, her comment has been that, you know, yes, I can get it out, but I'd have to work fairly hard to get that kneecap out. Um, it's not something that's just going to pop out on its own. And so that did come back as abnormal. And then based on the sire that I chose for her, I also did a basic cardiac. So I also um, had the, the heart clearances. I didn't do a full cardiac because there's no known heart issues in her lines, but because I was breeding her to a breed that has known heart issues, I wanted to make sure that at least our baseline looked good before I went any further. So what does that mean that you went to a cardiologist and had a basic cardio exam? Uh, so basic cardiac is just, um, your general practitioner mm. listening to the heart saying that there's no murmurs there's no abnormalities there's synchronous pulses on both sides just mm -hmm. you know all of the kind of basic heart screenings that they would do in an exam all of that looks normal so she I didn't see. have um a holter monitor she didn't have an echocardiogram right right uh, just because she she doesn't have any known heart issues in her lines um and actually <laughs> Her sire um, had a toxin exposure six years ago now, five years ago. Um, quite a while ago, he was poisoned um, unintentionally. I don't think this was on, on purpose, but he at some point got into something and so did my in-law's dog. And they were both hospitalized for a while. And that caused some heart issues with him um, that have since resolved. But that means that we did have Holter monitors and echocardiograms on him from treating that toxin exposure. Um, and so we kind of knew what was going on with him. And, and just to be clear, that was that he looked fairly normal. Yes. Yes. Um, so he, he initially did have some issues with his heart after the toxin exposure. Um, but those have since resolved. He also had some liver issues and those have since resolved. Phew. Poor yeah. man. That must have been scary. It yeah. Was, it was very scary. Yeah. All right. So, and, and just to be clear going into this, um, I, you know, if someone came to me asking for a genetics consult and said, I have a dog with a 
Patella, that's a one out of four. Would it be acceptable to breed this dog? I'd say if if you know if everything else is clear, yeah, just make sure to breed to someone else who has really really good knees. Um, right. Just because I don't I don't want people to have sort of doubts going into this as we go into this conversation. But I also recognize that on social media, people really want the dog to look perfect. Right, and a lot of the comments I got were. Um interesting because I, I know, for example, my veterinarian also um, has a client who's a Pomeranian breeder who's a um, AKC Pomeranian breeder of merit and produces really nice show-winning Pomeranians and is really comfortable breeding any dog in her program who has a grade two or lower. Mm-hmm. Um but that's Pomeranians and this is a mixed breed. And the, the way that we talk about those two are very different on social media. So a lot of the comments I got were, you know, you can get a nice mutt at any shelter. Why would you breed a mutt who has um, a failed health test? Mm. That's an interesting, it's an interesting question. You can get a nice mutt at any shelter. Um, sort of assuming that all mutts are the same. Right, right. And and that what you're breeding is, I mean, mutts are so diverse, which is one of the things I really love about them. I have a mutt in my house and she is nothing like your dogs. I love her. Um, she's perfect for me, but she looks nothing like your dogs. She's a different size, weight, shape, personality. Um, you know, if you're looking for a specific kind of sport mix, a dog who's coming from a really good home where they were carefully socialized. That's just different. Um, and again, you know, not throwing shade on shelter dogs. Um, but going to a breeder is not always because that breed is, is not available in the shelter. It's also because you really like the knowledge of what the breeder is doing. Right. There's, there's a big difference between, um, one of, of my foster fails who I don't have any known health history on and say my new puppy rig, the 14 month old who, when I went out to pick her up from her breeders, I was able to meet her um, sire and her dam and aunts and uncles and grandmas and great grandmas and great, great grandpas and dogs <laughs> who were really, really fit and happy and functional at advanced ages. So they had dogs as old as 18 years old on the property that were related to Rake that I got to meet that were still really functional. Yeah. Um, we met a couple, a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old that I would not have believed their ages if they weren't known right. um, because they were acting like they were pans age seven. You know, they were, they were still very playful and able to run around and um, really happy functional dogs. Yeah. And that's very different than bringing in a dog who doesn't have a known health history. Right. And that's not to say that that dog without a known health history is an, an amazing dog because my foster fail dogs have been amazing dogs. And I will probably always also foster and adopt dogs, but they're, they're two different things. Right. Right. And just calling back to what we said earlier, which is that, you know, uh, we'd really like to both of us would really love to see more dogs in this country um, coming from really excellent beginnings. And that's that's why Sarah is doing what she's doing. There may be 
uh, mixed breed dogs and shelters or certainly are mixed breed dogs and shelters, but she's trying to produce a certain kind of thing and a dog that has a really great start and not, not to take a home away from a shelter dog, um, but hopefully to produce dogs that will not end up in shelters is sort of a better way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And God, it's funny, like the, the one out of four Patella result, I'm just, I'm like, well, that is a perfect dog though. (laughs) Like it's like, I wouldn't breed her to another dog who had a one out of four, but that's not hard to find. Right. So, all right. So, so you thought through and decided you were going to go ahead with her. So how did you find a match for her, a sire for her puppies? Well, so first I, I obsessed about it for a year. Sure. I mean, that's a necessary first step. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, I talked to geneticists and I talked to other breeders and the breeder that I got rake from um, met Biz and watched her move around and gave me some really good things to think about. Um, and then I talked to veterinarians and theriogenologists. And the, the big thing that kept coming back was um, that, you know, it, this, this is a dog that is probably worth breeding because this issue is something that we can test for. It's not impacting her quality of life. And if we make good decisions, it's unlikely to impact the quality of life of her offspring. Right. So there's there's a big difference between breeding a dog where, um, say, they have severe GI issues that impact their quality of life. And we don't have good tests for every GI issue. And so we can't know how GI issues are inherited necessarily. And um, we can't necessarily know whether their offspring is going to have those same GI issues. That's very different than something like patellas we we can test. Right. um, And we can make informed decisions. Right. So that was kind of the process. Um, And then our sports medicine vet gave me some really good specific criteria to look for in a stud, um, which was angulation. So her thought was that if we could improve hind end angulation, this is very terrier, so she's fairly straight, then we would greatly reduce the chance of patellar issues. Um, So she suggested that I look for a stud that had at least 140 degrees standing angulation. Interesting. Cool. Um, so I, that was helpful because then I had a really specific metric to look at when I yeah, was looking numbers at numbers are nice. Stats. Yes. <laughs> um, as a nerd, numbers made me feel much, much better about the whole thing. And so um, one of her suggestions was, have you considered spaniels? I know they're not generally used a lot in sport mixes, but um, they tend to have really complementary structure to what mm. this has. Um, and then as I was thinking about it more, one of my concerns was that if I was placing Biz's offspring with really serious sports competitors, then if there were patellar issues, that was likely to be a big problem. But if, say, some of her puppies ended up with a grade one patellar issue and they were placed in 
homes that wanted pets first and foremost, which again is what my breeding program is, is focused on, that's less of an issue, right? It's not going to be a quality of life issue. It's not going to right. be um, something that's going to impact that dog's relationship and ability to do things with their person. Yes. So kind of while all of this was happening, um, I'd been talking a lot with some people who are in the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel um, world and talking about some of the issues that Cavaliers are facing and how difficult it's been to breed Cavaliers responsibly right now with the lack of healthy heart genes in the population. Yeah. And so I ended up breeding Biz to a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel stud. So where did you find him? So he is um, from a program that does both purebred Cavaliers and some Cavalier crosses. And the Cavalier crosses in his program are fairly recent. And talking to the breeder, it's because she was concerned that she can't responsibly breed purebreds within the structure of the breed club Mm -hmm. anymore because those dogs are going to have heart issues and that's not fair to the dogs and it's not fair to the families. And just to be clear, when Sarah says that the dogs are going to have heart issues, it is an amazing percentage of Cavaliers will develop a very specific heart issue. And I think I learned in vet school, it's like 90% of them, um, which basically means that some of them will, um, die before the heart issue manifests, but it seems to pretty much be fixed in the breed. Right. Um, and unfortunately that's not the only problem. There's also problems, um, other problems with, uh, syringomyelia and, um, chariot malformation yes and so it's it's kind of it's like whack-a-mole with health issues right if you're focusing on um maybe reducing your coefficient of inbreeding so getting more diversity into your lines um then you're probably going to be crossing to dogs that have one of those two very serious issues and if you're focusing on avoiding one of those issues you're probably going to have to look for a dog who has the other issue, right? You you can't necessarily find dogs who are clear of all the issues. They just aren't out there in the population. Right. Um, or if they are, they're probably really closely related. Yeah. And so she had already started doing outcrosses. What was so she outcrossing that, to? I'm curious. Uh, she's outcrossing to poodles and bichons. Mm, okay. Um, so... <laughs> She's she's definitely not well liked by her breed club. Yeah, I can imagine anymore for that. Um, but the the dogs she's producing are much healthier than necessarily some of the purebred cavaliers. And I'm not saying every cavalier. Like I, I don't want it to come across that way. But just in general, the cavalier mixes from health tested and responsibly land litters are less likely to have these health issues than purebred cavaliers. Right. Um, So I knew she was already open to mixed breeding and we knew each other from 
online communities going way back. And she had some really good um, reading advice and thoughts. So I ended up crossing biz to one of her boys with the thought that his structure was really complimentary. Um, his health testing results were really good. Uh, the health testing in his lines and the longevity in his lines is really good for a cavalier. And I knew that temperament wise, these were going to be very social, easy pets. That sounds lovely. Um, so you made this decision and were you public about it on social media as you were setting up the breeding or did you wait until you had puppies on the ground or how did you handle that? It depended on the community. So people definitely knew people who knew me who were maybe like Facebook friends with me, um, knew that this was what I was planning to do. And I was happy to answer questions, but I wasn't necessarily going out to dog stop groups and saying, hey, this is what we're doing. We're driving <laughs> to Maryland from Minnesota to do this breeding. Um, <laughs> so it, it definitely was community specific. So you tra that was quite a ways to travel. And so you brought, you waited for Biz to come into heat and then you traveled out? Yes. So you meet and the stud? I, I did that um, because I wanted to meet the stud in person. Mm. Um, and I wanted to, um, do a live coverage just because I felt that that was the kind of best chance since it was a maiden bitch. And this was actually the studs first litter as well. Mm. Um, so we had the, the best chance for puppies with a live cover. Fair. She's probably used to traveling if she's a sport dog. She's an amazing traveler. So mm. Um, one of the things I do with my dogs is they all have their own personal crate and we get stickers from every like national park we visit with them or, oh God, um, all adorable. the places. And <laughs> yeah, so they've got like their little travel log on their crates and her crate is actually running out of space. She's been so many places with me. So she loves to travel and she's the perfect little traveling companion. Oh, she's, that's great. That's yeah, great. Quiet and relaxed in hotels and happy to be in the car for 15 hours if we have to be with potty breaks and um, able to eat anything. So I don't necessarily have to pack special food for her. I can just kind of feed her what we're eating on the road. That's dog safe um, and know she's going to be fine. That's so. awesome. Yeah. So talking about, again, about the, you know, the welfare of the, the parents as we're producing nice puppies. Um, that's nice that she can, that the, the whole process could be good for her so then what she she took first first time it sounds like she did yep congratulations that is awesome yeah um and so and it any problems in the whelping or does that smooth um so this is where i go back to you know my my whelping experience is primarily with shelter and rescue dogs and oh my goodness this was easy and i'm not saying every whelping is because it's not um and we know it's not but because she was so fit, she she didn't really lose a lot of conditioning during her pregnancy. She got big, um, but she was still very, very active. Um, her delivery for, she had five puppies, um, and the time from the birth of the first puppy to the birth of the last puppy was an hour and 15 minutes. Wow. So it was, I, I've never... 
attended a whelping that was that fast. It was very, very fast. She was um, a phenomenal mother right from the start. And it was just the puppies were all born very um, active and vital and nobody needed anything special. It was a very uncomplicated whelping. Oh, that's fabulous. It was. That's fabulous. (laughs) So, um, and then you were talking about placing the puppies more in, in sort of more pet homes or, or there's a big space between pet home and very high level competition homes. So where, where did these puppies fall and what kind of homes they went to? So the homes that I was looking for specifically were homes that wanted a pet first, um, but were maybe dog sport curious. Um, Two of Biza's brothers are junior handled in their Mm -hmm. sports. And so I was excited for the prospect of placing some of the puppies with junior handlers. I think um, from a community perspective, the more we can support junior handlers and welcome them into the community and place fun, easy dogs with them. Yeah. The better for our dog sports, right? Because I like playing these things with my dogs and I'd really like it if the communities continue to grow and um, survive. Yeah. So that's kind of who I was looking for. Um, And the people who had maybe not had a lot of luck with finding responsible breeders, um, because of other aspects of things like people who've maybe had to euthanize a dog for behavioral issues in the past Mm -hmm. um, can sometimes find themselves blacklisted from good breeders or people who are first-time pet owners. Um, So that's what I was kind of looking for in homes for this litter. Um, It's not what I got, and it was really surprising and almost a little alarming um, so of these five puppies, every single one was placed with a professional dog trainer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How'd that happen? Um, and they, they were the, wait, let me guess. The professional dog trainers were sick of having dogs with behavior problems. You've got it. Yep. Yeah. Um, so when I look at my puppy list right now, and some of that just might be kind of word of mouth on who I know. Um, so there's definitely a bias there, but my puppy list is 90% pet professionals. Um, so it's shelter and rescue workers, professional dog trainers, veterinarians, and especially veterinarians who specialize in behavior and vet techs. That's, that's who's on my wait list. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's kind of telling, I think that those are the people that are really specifically seeking out these easy pet dogs because They've had a difficult time with dogs in the past and they're tired. <laughs> Compassion fatigue is real. Yeah. I mean, the, the border collie that a lot of people know my story with him has, has me completely exhausted and I want something really easy next time. And you and I have talked about how I would love to have one of your dogs if you ever started moving away from the terrier direction. Right. <laughs> which, which now you have, so. <laughs> I have, yeah. And actually the Cavalier that I... um shows is a registered therapy dog he works every week in the hospital um and he lives with chickens which was something that um obviously spaniels can be kind of birdie and i know that biz is a very proficient hunter she's a very good terrier who does very 
helpful terrier tasks around our household of keeping vermin out of our house uh, this time of year in the fall when they're all trying to move in. Yeah, I would take one of those. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I I did want to move away from that a little bit just because it can be more difficult for the average pet home to manage highly predatory dogs. Sure. And so choosing Benny as the stud, um, my hope was that we would move away from some of that prey drive. And, And we it's too early to tell with the puppies, but so far it's looking promising. Um, obviously some predatory behaviors don't show up until social maturity. So we won't know for sure until they're like two. Well, what do you know so far? So first of all, what do they look like? So I've been joking that they're like off-brand beagles. (laughs) Um, so they're like great value beagles. They, (laughs) two of them are tricolor. Um, and three of them are white with sable. Mm. And um, they definitely have the cavalier expression. They have a little bit more muzzle than a cavalier. Um, they've got the cavalier ears. Yeah, I was They're curious all about the ears. Coated. Yep, Bummer. they all have those long um, off brand beagle ears. <laughs> Interesting. Who knew that was dominant? Okay. Right. Um, and then they. Um, as puppies, they looked just like Cavaliers. And I was like, okay, so we all got the Cavalier body shape. And then they all hit about 10 weeks and their legs just started going. So they, <laughs> yeah. they're they Cavaliers with longer legs. Yeah. Nice. Um, so what I had told people who were interested in this litter was that I was hoping that they would be um, pretty functional dog-shaped dogs. And that's mm-hmm. definitely... <laughs> what they are um they're dog shaped dogs there's nothing exaggerated about any of their traits they're just kind of what you would think of as the average dog plus long ears and how are they behaviorally you said it was too soon to really tell and and i concur that they're certainly going to change as they mature but what are you seeing so far so what i can say so far based on um kind of comparing them to all of the other litters i've raised is that they are um very social they seek out children um and some of that might be socialization you know i was making sure that they were exposed to um positive interactions with kids when they were with me but i think a lot of it is also probably just kind of genetic sociability um, they they really like people. They want to meet people. They want to connect with people. Um, they want to be petted by people. So they seek out new people. Um, they seek out novelty. So they're very environmentally um, unconcerned about things like loud noises or nice. new surfaces or... Um, I had little Iroh at a disc dog competition this last weekend and he was just cock of the walk at the <laughs> disc dog. He was just strutting around with his little sweater on because it's Minnesota and it was like a feels like temp of 30 degrees oh. Fahrenheit. Um, but, you know, there were barking dogs. There were really active dogs playing disc. There was a loudspeaker. There was a um, inflatable blow up Jack Skellington. <laughs> Because it nice. was Halloween themed. That's terrifying, yeah. And he was just, all of it was great. 
he was like this is amazing this is so much fun i'm so excited to be here fabulous um, and every person and every dog he met he was just a delightful social little guy so comparatively those are the things i've seen that um are maybe different from other litters i've raised that there's less sensitivity to novel environments and that's not to say that there's not there's definitely a range in the litter so um there's some puppies that are more environmentally sensitive than others just like in every litter sure but even the ones who are more environmentally sensitive maybe they'll startle when they first see something new and then within you know 30 to 60 seconds they're like oh okay I've got this and and they're resilient and able to recover versus some of the other puppies I've raised where maybe it might take several exposures and a lot of behavior modification to get to that same point. Right. So, well, they sound fantastic. Um, Do you have plans for them if they turn out well as adults to end up making more babies? Yes. So... Uh, there's a couple different directions that I'm kind of thinking with that. And obviously, this is all way too soon to know. Of course. Um, but my hope is that if they mature really well, they might be able to be used in Cavalier Backcross programs. Oh, good. So all of them um, have that influence from biz of the, the healthy heart genes and the um, healthier skull shape and they still have a lot of cavalier traits so you can tell that they're half cavalier when you meet them um you know because they're short-coated they they look like little off-brand beagles but when i tell you that this is a a cavalier mix you're going to go oh of course it is yes I, i see that um so they would be dogs where it'd be fairly simple to return to type based on who they were matched with. Um, And that would be something that I think would be really helpful for the community. So my hope is that there will be people who might be interested in that. Um, And then obviously I I would like to continue with them just with this goal of nice, easy pet slash hobbyist sport level dogs. Yeah, I call it sport light. Yeah, Sport Light is a, a really good, you know, they're not going to be podium level dogs at a right. national level. Right. But if you want to go out there and play agility locally, they're going to love doing that. And you're going to be pretty successful with them. Yeah. So, but you only kept one of them and he's a boy. So how does that right. work? Yeah. So we had four boys and one girl in this litter. Oh, bummer. <laughs> right. Um, and a lot of the people who were interested were interested in girls. So I said, you know, that's what happens. If you guys had all been interested in boys, we would have have the other way around. We would have had four girls. Sure. (laughs) But I ended up placing all five of them as um, partner home dogs. And what that means is that they're, they're fully owned by their people. Um, I, I don't want to dictate, you know, vaccine schedules or diet or, um, training or or any of that stuff they're owned by their people um but i did retain breeding rights for them with an agreement that um i will then cover the the health testing costs when they Mm. are old enough if we like how they're maturing 
And then if I do end up using them um, in my program, then their owners will get part of their purchase price back. Hmm. So up to three litters, um, and they would get 30% of their purchase price back with each litter. Um, Because I feel like there's a lot of co-ownership or guardian homes or partner homes or whatever you want to call it that um, can sometimes be a little predatory towards the puppy buyers. Sure. And so I was trying to set things up in a way where if I was in the puppy buyer position, I would be really comfortable with my autonomy with my dog um, and my ability to make choices for my dog and feel like I, I had a say in how my dog was used. Yeah. Nice. I'm just, I'm thinking that I should start talking to some people about um, what, what their perspectives are as, uh, as puppy homes for different, uh, different co-ownership situations. That could be an interesting future topic. That would be, yeah, I would love to listen to that. Wow. So that was a lot. Um, So you are, it sounds like you're feeling good about where things stand now. You have some future breeding plans. You're going to wait for these guys to grow up a bit more. You think you might breed Biz again at some point? Uh, Possibly, yes. So my plan with Biz at this point is to see how her puppies mature and then potentially breed her um, in a year. So looking at um, like fall of 2023, if I like how everything's going. Um, I'm certainly not in any rush. I I have a lot of people who want puppies. Um, and so there's, there's a little bit of that external pressure of, I do want to be able to provide nice dogs to, to good homes, but I also want to make sure that I'm making good choices and making informed choices. And I feel like I'll be able to do that better if we wait and see how these guys are maturing. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense seeing uh, what kind of genetic material she's passing along. Right. It's going to be so interesting to see how these guys turn out. It is. I'm really enjoying it. Um, And I'm really enjoying the, the updates I'm getting, you know, having these puppies with professional trainers um, who've raised a lot of puppies and what they're seeing has been really helpful. Well, it certainly wasn't what I was planning on. <laughs> um, it I I feel like I am getting a lot of really good information from it, and they couldn't have gone to better homes. Um, they're all in. I just love all of their homes so much. Well, I'm really glad it turned out so well. Um and thank you so much for all of this detail about what this whole experience has been like for you. I know you have a long waiting list. Do you want to give people information about how to get in touch with you if they're interested in your program? Or are you feeling overwhelmed as, as things stand? Oh, no, I, I'm happy to share that information. Um, obviously, I, I do have a lot of people who are already interested, but um, that doesn't mean that I'm going to have the right litter for each person so um for example my young dog rig is a much higher drive dog than biz or pan and if i choose to breed her she's her puppies would be going to very different homes than biz's puppies because she is more dog and i i'd want to make sure that they're specifically going to people that 
um, want that, that welcome that. Uh, so my program is Puzzle Dogs, and it is on Facebook. So you can search for Puzzle Dogs on Facebook and find me there. Um, I currently have a Good Dog profile. Uh, Good Dog has changed a few things, so I don't know if I'll be on there forever. But for now, I am, and there's a lot of extra information there um, if people want to look at my dogs. Um, I also have a lot of information on the Facebook page about titles and health testing and pedigrees. And I try to be really transparent about all of that. So there's links to all of that. Um, I generally tell people that it might not be right away. Like if they reach out to me, um, give me a little bit to respond just because there's a lot going on. I've got a lot of balls in the air, but I absolutely will respond. Um, just it, it may be a few even, days or a week. Even without the secret handshake. Right, right. Even without the secret handshake, especially without the secret handshake. Yeah. If you ask me a really awkward question, I'll be like, oh, it's one of my people. <laughs> well, thank you again, Sarah. I really appreciate this. Yes, thank you so much for having me. No problem. It was my pleasure. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Marta. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs.